This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. friends. Welcome back. You have made it back to the Transcend Human Podcast. Great to be with you. November 13, 2023. So it's been a hot minute. I don't even know. A couple weeks, three weeks maybe since our last episode. Um, But we are back for another episode of the Transcend Human Podcast. Great to be with you. Between our last episode and this one, um, my family was able to take a little trip to New York City to watch our middle daughter perform. So she's in a musical theater program and this is her senior year. And it's really the year when they do their large scale performances. So there was no way on earth we were going to miss out on that. So on this trip, we got to see her play the lead role in the musical, As You Like It. Uh, It was an amazing show. We had such a good time. So good to watch her do that thing that she does best. And at such a high level, it's, it's, when I look back, it's literally been, I think since high school was the last full blown production that I ever saw her in. So it was great for our family to be there to support her and to watch her shows. Now I'm not a big city guy. Um, I feel like you're either a big city person or you aren't kind of like one of those black and white things, right? Where there's, there's not a whole lot of gray in between. You're either like a Coke person or a Pepsi person, or you either like mushrooms on your pizza or you don't. But even though the whole big city thing kind of stresses me out a little bit, it's still fun to do something new. And when you get to see your daughter perform, none of that other stuff matters anyway. So that's it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, but that literally brings us up to speed for this week. I think that's all I'm going to touch on. We don't need to talk about the other huge things going on in the world because most of them are negative and it's just going to bring us down. So let's dive into our minute of transparency. This week I'm calling it, We're Not Made of Money. So as I prepared for this episode, I couldn't help but think back uh, and think about my relationship with money. As it is with so many of us, we learn about money in our youth, right? as kids watching our parents, friends, neighbors, and by experiencing the culture around us. So my earliest memory is basically living in a modest little house on Philippa Street in Hinsdale, Illinois. Hinsdale is a Chicago suburb, and it was a community made up largely of Seventh-day Adventist families who worked at Hinsdale Hospital. Uh, Just down the street was Hinsdale Junior Academy, where I attended first grade. And in those early years, I really had no concept of money or its importance. From there, we moved to Powell, Wyoming, and we spent the next seven years in the wild, wild west. And that's really where I started to grasp the concept of money. I remember my mom telling us that she had to work or we wouldn't have enough money. I remember my parents sharing a car and eventually purchasing a second one, but one that was very old. I remember them buying a house in Powell and then us having to move back to Chicago and them not being able to sell the house in Powell due to a crashed real estate market in that town. 
And that was really a big blow to them, one that really kind of started the money conversations. So from then on, we had phrases like, we aren't made of money, money doesn't grow on trees, things are a little tight right now, uh, we can't afford to do some of the things that your friends get to do, right? These phrases became very common in our family. And yet through all of this, we had our needs met. We went on low budget vacations, we played sports, we had clean clothes, we never went without food, but we always knew that money was tight or that money was an issue. Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you grew up in a very similar situation. Others would give anything to be in my shoes, right? Because your situation wasn't that good. Maybe you didn't have clean clothes and maybe there were times when you didn't have enough food. If that was your situation, I am so sorry that you had to go through that. I can't even imagine the stress and the anxiety that must come along with that sort of upbringing. And then there are those of you who grew up on the opposite side of the spectrum, right? You never thought twice about money, right? It seemed like it did grow on trees. You were frustrated because you had to learn how to drive using the old Lexus and not the new BMW. And then there is everyone in between. And it's really crazy to me now, looking back, how much we're influenced by money and by the socioeconomic status that we experienced growing up. I look at where I'm at today and I wonder, do I communicate the same thing to my kids? That money is hard to come by or that it doesn't grow on trees? Do I still view money from a scarcity mindset? You know, every time I buy something just for the fun of it, I feel like this twinge of guilt. And I've never really been a generous person. I, I've often find myself thinking if I give my money to that person or to that cause, then I might not have enough. Even when it's obvious, I would have enough. And finally, I think about my future and, and the sense that there is a green ceiling at times. Now we've all heard of a glass ceiling, right? The invisible threshold that women feel when they try to compete in, in the workforce with men. But in my case, I, I can't help but wonder if there isn't a green ceiling, some invisible threshold that limits my ability to become successful based on the way I grew up. In other words, because my parents were hardworking middle-class Americans, did that create a green ceiling for me and my siblings? An unwritten rule that we can't or won't ever see success above and beyond what we grew up with. Now, I'm not naive, right? This this can't be an actual thing because you hear stories all the time about people who grew up in the projects and then making it into Harvard or little Johnny from the hood who grew up to become a famous football player. Stories like that, which tell me that my green ceiling is just a figment of my imagination. But at times it still feels like there's this cap on my success. Every job I get pays just enough to help me survive, but never more. And the role that I play seems to remain the same every time, never moving up the ladder, just kind of parking it on the same rung every single time. It's like I've found my rut and I'm stuck in it. But maybe my green ceiling isn't created by society. Maybe my green ceiling is just that. It's my green ceiling, a cap that I've placed on myself, a cognitive threshold of sorts that I've set for myself, a scarcity mindset that keeps holding me back. Why is it that I dare to dream, but then sabotage that dream by saying, ah, it'll never come true anyway. So let's wrap things up with this. I still don't know how much 
I'm being influenced by my past and the money issues that we had from our childhood. But I do know one thing. Money is a big deal. It holds a lot of power, both in society and in our personal lives. So today, we're going to talk about it. Today's topic, transcending currency. Chapter one, before there was money. Chapter two, money, capitalism, and a means to an end. And chapter three, money equals control. Chapter one, before there was money. Have you ever stopped to think about money? Like, I'm not talking about how to get more money, but really thinking about what it is and what's behind it, why we have it, where it came from, and what life would look like if we didn't need to worry about it. I can't say that I spend much time there, but in keeping with my disclosures about my kids and wondering if I've passed down an unhealthy view of money, it shouldn't surprise me that two of my three kids have brought this up. Now, I can't remember the full conversation, but I remember bits and pieces, kind of like this. Why do we have to have money? Or why is it that some people have so much money and others don't have any? And why can't we all just make the same amount? And why can't everyone just be given a set amount of money and we'll just all live happily ever after? Pretty insightful, right? Again, not sure if this was passed down from me to my kids based on my relationship with money, or if they came by it out of their own sense of viewing the world around them. In 2016, we moved to Orange County, California, an area where money is even more important, which places it under the microscope. Now, I'm sure that my kids were faced with extreme examples of it in school, right? The clothes that the kids wore, the cars they drove, the homes that they live in. Around here, it seems like money flows freely. And on the surface, so many people seem to have it all figured out. So maybe this is where their questions came from. I don't know, but they are good questions. So let's do a quick historical sketch about money, just so that we're clear on where it came from. According to a Nova article on the PBS website, money has existed for a really long time but not always in the current form or the form that we're used to, but in some form. And before that, everyone seemed to agree that bartering was the name of the game, offering someone something in exchange for something else. Then at some point in certain areas of the world, people started to agree on items that could hold value and that the identified item was worth a set amount. So instead of bartering, you could simply buy something using the agreed upon item or items. These items included things like cows or precious gems or shells, things like that. But they could have been just about anything, right? Depending on what part of the world you live in and depending on what that culture viewed as valuable. Then in 1000 BC, China introduced metal coins and around 500 BC, even more modern coins began to pop up. Then in about 800 AD was the introduction of paper money. And in the 1800s, we agreed on something called the gold standard. So basically the gold standard suggests that all of the money in a culture or a society would be based on the amount of gold that it held, right? Like they put gold in these reserves and based on the amount of gold that they had in the reserves, that's how much printed money could exist. 
This proved the worth of the money and ensured that the government wasn't just printing money to print money. In the U.S., we adopted the gold standard in 1900. Then came this little thing called the Great Depression, and the gold standard was basically thrown out. And that brings us to the current state of affairs. Paper and coin money, along with written checks and bank transfers that are standard in most countries. With the recent addition of things like debit cards and credit cards, where we're basically able to purchase things without carrying the physical money on our person. This also opened up the ability to purchase things online. The money still comes from the same place, but we are able to purchase things online using e-commerce solutions and payment gateways like PayPal, and now personalized platforms like Venmo, uh, and even texting money through iMessages on an iPhone. And this is where things really start to get strange. Because up until now, all financial transactions were based on real physical money that you had living in a bank somewhere. If I wanted to walk down to the bank and take all of it out, they would hand me physical currency based on the amount in my account. But all of that is about to change. Most of us have heard about cryptocurrency. The most recognized being what? Bitcoin, of course. Now, it was created during the financial crisis in 2009. Simply put, Bitcoin is bank-free internet money, making it a decentralized currency, not controlled by the banking system or the government. Instead, the money is controlled by a network of users who control and verify transactions. The perk is that Bitcoin is universal, and there are no fees, like the ones that people are forced to pay with banking institutions. Anytime you purchase something using Bitcoin, it is documented and logged in something called the blockchain, which is a publicly recorded ledger of all transactions. All transactions are public facing, which isn't something people really understood at the beginning, but they are. People assume that it would be more of like an anonymous way of paying for things, giving them the ability to use it for less than legal activities, but it didn't turn out to be the case. And finally, because Bitcoin is not backed by a standard like gold, it's only worth the value that people place upon it. This means that the value can fluctuate drastically, making it a very unstable um, currency compared to traditional currency. Okay, so why did we just walk through all of that? Well, because I wanted to lay the foundation for where we are right now in the history of the world. We're living in a time where traditional currency is still the norm. Cryptocurrency is available, but it's kind of the wild, wild west right now, and it's not really fully adopted into society. And we're right on the edge of the next big thing. Now, this is my opinion, but as time moves on, it's starting to feel less and less like an opinion and more and more like, yeah, this is really going to happen. This is right around the corner. And it's this whole idea of moving away from traditional currency to a fully digitized solution. Now, it's not moving from traditional currency to cryptocurrency. Instead, it's moving to a digital version of the current system. So based on the things that we're learning from crypto, based on technology advancements like AI, quantum computing, and digital identification, based on the government's desire to maintain control over the financial system, based on all of those things, 
This new digital version of our traditional currency, I believe, is right around the corner. Chapter two, money, capitalism, and a means to an end. So what we just walked through was more of a formal history of money with just a slight touch on what might come next. But what I wanna do next is discuss the why behind the history, what money does and what people have done with it, the problems that it causes, and how, when combined with capitalism, can be used as a weapon by greedy and selfish people to get what they want. Now, money in and of itself is not the problem. The concept of buying something that you need and handing over money in order to obtain it, that service or that product, isn't inherently wrong. In fact, it's a very natural next step after bartering. So let's think back. Let's think way back to the beginning of time. For some, this probably means trying to figure out what it looked like to have Adam and Eve on earth, right? In the Garden of Eden. Um, and then them setting out on their own in a difficult new world. For others, this might look like the early cavemen living in caves, trying to hide from saber-toothed tigers. But in either scenario, I'm sure people lived in caves. But that's not the point. Think back to the way they probably lived. In my mind, there was no need for money because each individual had what they needed to survive. They either foraged for or grew their own food, they hunted for meat, and they obtained the leather for clothing. They figured out how to assemble tents or they lived in caves. And that was it. Because each individual had these skills or grew up in families where these skills were passed down, there wouldn't have necessarily been a need for money, right? Because there was nothing to buy. Now, let's say for some reason that your crops were all destroyed and the food that you were counting on ran out. Maybe at that point you would start to barter, right? With another person or another family in order to get the necessary food and the seeds to start over. But then at some point, everything changed. Maybe the cave dwellers actually learned how to build houses. And to build those houses, you needed wood and nails and tools to assemble those homes. At first, you just created them yourselves. But at some point, people started to gravitate toward and away from certain activities. Maybe someone became very good at hunting and another person became very good at building homes. These two could barter in order to have both areas of expertise fulfilled. But at some point, people figured out that creating a system of currency, items that held agreed upon value like shells or precious stones or metal coins, it allowed them to get the things that they needed without having something of equal value to barter. Now, because this, this is really, at the end of the day, the problem with bartering, because both sides have to find the other party's product valuable. But if all I have to trade are candles, and the other person already has enough candles, I might lose out on the food I need, because they don't want my candles. So because of this, it makes sense that money or currency became a thing. And again, nothing wrong with it, right? It serves a purpose. But at some point in time, money was co-opted by groups of people in order to leverage it in a whole new way, whether it be banks or governments. Either way, money was pulled into a regulated system in order to control it. And as we'll find out, to set up a system by which certain people could benefit immensely 
while others' lives became harder and harder. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and uh, be transparent with you that I am not a finance guy. So I have no idea what came first, the chicken or the egg. But capitalism seems to be the word that we use for this brave new world. According to the International Monetary Fund, we can summarize capitalism like this. It starts off with the following caveat, which I find interesting. It says, free markets may not be perfect, but they are probably the best way to organize an economy. Capitalism is often thought of as an economic system in which private actors own and control property in accord with their own interests and demand and supply freely set prices in markets in a way that can serve the best interests of the society. The essential feature of capitalism is the motive to make profit. As Adam Smith, the 18th century philosopher and father of our modern economics says, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard for their own interest. Both parties to a voluntary exchange transaction have their own interest in the outcome, but neither can obtain what he or she wants without addressing what the other wants. It is this rational self-interest that can lead to economic prosperity. In a capitalistic economy, capital assets such as factories, mines, and railroads can be privately owned and controlled. Labor is purchased for money wages, capital gains accrue to private owners, and prices allocate capital and labor between competing uses. Although some form of capitalism is the basis for nearly all economies in the world today, for much of the last century, it was but one of two major approaches to economic organization. In the other, socialism, the state owns the means of production and the state-owned enterprises seek to maximize social good rather than profits. So there you go. You probably feel like you just enrolled in high school level econ class all over again. But that's as far as I'm going to go with capitalism, just to define it, because that's the reality that we live in here in the U.S., but you can definitely see how the idea of capitalism has influenced our political polarization, right? Republicans are all about capitalism, protecting the interests of the individuals, making sure that capitalistic values of selfishness, or should I say self-interest, continues, thereby impacting the entire country for the better. Democrats typically push back when they see people not benefiting from capitalism, and they suggest that we address the problems that come from individualism and greed. This is why the right often refers to the left as socialists, right? Because their focus is on the good of all people and not the individual, who often winds up being a privileged individual in the first place. Anyway, now I know that that's a very surfacey explanation and I'm just highlighting very stereotypical explanations that exist in our country. But at the end of the day, there seems to be a pretty strong connection between your view on capitalism and your political views. Now, what I want to do next is list some of the problems that we see in a capitalistic society. So according to economicshelp.org, 
and a 2019 article by Tejvan Pettinger. Uh, here are seven major problems with capitalism. First is inequality. So the benefits of capitalism are rarely equitably distributed. Number two, financial instability and the economic cycle. So capitalism re relies on financial markets, shares, bonds, and money markets, but financial markets have a tendency to cause booms and busts, right? Very unstable. Number three, monopoly power. So in a free market, successful firms can gain monopoly power. This enables them to charge higher prices to consumers. Supporters of capitalism argue that only capitalism enables economic freedom, but the freedom of a monopoly can be abused and consumers lose out because they have no choice. Number four is monopsony. So monopsony is market power in employing factors of production. For example, firms can have monopsony power in employing workers and paying lower wages. This enables firms to be more profitable, but can mean workers don't share from the same level of proceeds as the owners of the capital. Number five, immobilities. So in a free market, factors of production are supposed to be able to easily move from an unprofitable sector to a new profitable industry. However, in practice, this is much more difficult. For example, a farm worker who is made unemployed cannot just fly off to a big city and find a new job. This person has geographical ties to their birthplace, um, may or may not have the right skills for another job. Therefore, in capitalist societies, we often see long periods of structural unemployment. Number six, environmental costs and externalities. So in capitalist economies, there is a limited government intervention and a reliance on free markets. However, market forces ignore external costs and external benefits. Therefore, we may, we may get overproduction and overconsumption of goods that cause harmful effects to third parties. This can lead to serious economic costs like pollution, global warming, acid rain, loss of rare species, and external costs that damage future generations. And finally, number seven, it encourages greed and materialism. So the nature of capitalism is to reward profit. The capitalist system can create incentives for managers to pursue profit over decisions which would maximize social welfare. For example, firms are using theories of price discrimination to charge higher prices to consumers who want to jump the queue. This makes sense from the perspective of maximizing profit. However, if we have a society where the rich can jump ahead by simply paying more or pay to see a congressman quicker, for example, it erodes social norms and a sense of fair play. Now, this article is simply trying to point out some risks that come with capitalism, ways in which it could be used in a selfish or manipulative manner. But just because they could exist doesn't mean they do, right? I mean, here in America, land of the free and home of the brave, we don't struggle with any of this stuff, right? Okay, you can stop laughing now. Because we all understand the reasons 
Tejvan can write an article like this is because he's simply documenting things that are already in place, things that do happen every single day in capitalist societies around the world, societies just like ours. So let me walk back through the list and give you an example for each one. First up, inequality. This, this is probably the most obvious, right? The gap between the haves and the have-nots. And is it shrinking in America? No, of course not. It's growing like wildfire. It's because of the capitalist loophole. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. For simple reasons, like it takes money to make money. The wealthy pass down their wealth and they're able to collect high levels of interest on assets that they hold. And basically, they can use their current wealth to purchase things that will help grow their wealth. Now, an interesting story here is the whole Bitcoin thing. So this is a great example of you have to have money to make money. So I work with a guy who got really into Bitcoin. And if you know anything about Bitcoin, there's this thing called mining. You can mine Bitcoin. And what it is, is it's a computer that you set up and the computer performs actions on the blockchain. And I don't know if I'm saying this right or not, but there's something that you can do to set up the computer to be part of this blockchain. And as your computer runs through these cycles and, and provides this service, you are actually gaining Bitcoin. So you're actually getting paid to do this work. So my friend goes out and buys tons of machines, right? He's got, he's got this whole farm of computers that are all connected together and they're all in this room, climate controlled, air conditioned room, specifically to mine Bitcoin to make money. Now, it took a lot of money, not only to buy the hardware, but to provide the room and the environmentally, um, cool area to allow the machines to run smoothly in order to make this money. But to me, that's just a perfect example of you have to have money to make money. A poor person would never be able to make money off of Bitcoin because they wouldn't have the money to buy the ingredients or the hardware to do it in the first place. Number two, financial instability and the economic cycle. So we all know that the economy is fickle, right? It ramps up, it ramps up, it ramps up only to crash at some point. It's a cyclical thing. And what we found is that the wealthy, as long as they diversify the way that they should, are often not impacted by the drops in the market the way small business owners or small investors are. So these massive shifts only widen the gap between the wealthy and the poor. Number three, monopoly power. It's not difficult to identify monopolies that are out there, right? You've got Apple, Microsoft, Google, and then there's the entire uh, industries like the natural gas industry, who for years kept clean air vehicles from being introduced because they would lose money, right? And then there's the music industry that kept digital music from being released until they could figure out a way to harness it and control it in order to maintain their stranglehold on the profits. Number four, monopsony. So when large companies make billions of dollars, but the wealth is not spread throughout the company, that's what that refers to. I think a good example of this is probably the, um, 
the struggles that Walmart went through when, when people did some research and figured out how much money the people at the top were making versus the day-to-day employees at the company. And we play, we see it play out every day, right? With the striking writers and the actors and the UAW, right? Employees getting paid very little while the company executives take home massive, massive profits. Number five, immobilities. So basically it's the inability of people to move from one industry to another. And the suggestion here is really that it's easier for a wealthy person to switch careers than it is for a poor person. So a person who has experience as a chef in a restaurant industry, it's pretty difficult for them to move to a whole new skill set, right? They're more likely going to stay in that industry. Now, sure, they can learn a new skill, but it's difficult, right? And it takes time and it takes money. Whereas somebody who is very wealthy, they have more transferable skills and or the ability to pay for additional skill training in order to do something different. Now, this is an access to opportunity thing, both in the training and in the location um, aspect, if you're urban versus rural. Number six, environmental costs and externalities. So this is pretty obvious, right? With limited government oversight and corporate policies on how pollution is managed, we quickly ran up a national debt in terms of environmental degradation. And we're paying for it today. Call it global warming or climate change. But however you slice it, our national environment, our natural environment has taken one for the team. And now it's raising a white flag and we're getting to see how bad things can really get from rising temps to the El Nino. We experienced this year, natural disasters, and the list just goes on and on. And finally, encourages greed and materialism. Again, I don't need to say much about this. It's pretty obvious that when you live in a capitalist society, It allows those with wealth to keep getting wealthier. And it also allows them access to things like politicians and lobby groups who will ensure their way of life isn't disrupted. And when it comes to materialism, there isn't even a distinction between the haves and the have-nots. Everyone in a capitalist country has their eye on something. We're all consumers. And though the dollar amount might be different, we're all still buying things that we don't need. Chapter three, money equals control. So in the last chapter, we spent a lot of time discussing the fact that capitalism, which exists largely because of money, has its fair share of problems. But we didn't spend a lot of time discussing the means to an end part. I tried to touch on it in the last section when we discussed the music industry blocking the evolution of music in terms of a digital format. The blocking part was a means to an end right? It was their way to ensure that they had time to figure out how they were still going to make money off of digital music. When we talked about the wealthy being able to grow their wealth, things like buying up more real estate and, and things like that, that's a means to an end, the end being more money. But in this last chapter, I want to talk about the ultimate means to an end. And to do that, we need to focus on this idea that money equals control. To illustrate this fact, I'm going to walk through two very real scenarios that exist today. Scenario one, living off the grid. Joe Blow decides for some crazy reason that he's just done with society. He's tired of the speed of life, tired of materialism, and he wants to just live a simple life. 
So he moves to rural Alaska and builds himself a shelter, grows his own food, hunts for his meat with a bow and arrow that he made himself, or he uses traps for small game that are easily built and maintained. He fishes as well. He uses fire to cook and heat his house. And if he ever needed electricity for some reason, he brought with him a solar-powered battery cell that would allow him to charge a phone or a radio or things like that if he really needed it. Now, Joe has a truck, but at the end of the day, he doesn't really even need it. He feels a level of freedom because he is 100% detached from the controlling elements of society. He owes nothing to nobody. He simply exists. Scenario two, rat in a cage. Obviously, this reference was taken from the Smashing Pumpkins song, Bullet with Butterfly Wings. Despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage. In this scenario, June Gloom, I thought that was a fun little name. June Gloom is living in the hustle and bustle of a large city in the United States. She has the following bills, money that she owes to other people or companies in order to live. She has a lease payment for her apartment. She has a lease payment for her new Tesla. She has electricity costs for her apartment and the Tesla. Gas costs for heat, cooking, and hot water. Water costs for living and for watering lawn. Trash, recycling, composting fees, HOA fees for outdoor landscaping. Insurance fees for home, auto, medical, dental, and vision. Phone and phone plan. Entertainment costs for eating out, movies, shows, and travel. Internal entertainment costs for cable, Netflix, Hulu, and all the other apps random monthly subscriptions for apps and additional services. And that's just off the top of my head. June is a rat in a cage, working 50 to 60 hours a week to make enough money to tread water as the water rises in her small little cage. Sound familiar? But I mean, that's it, right? That's living the American dream. I feel like that's my life and the lives of every other person I know. Throw in kids and multiple vehicles, and your life just keeps getting more and more complicated. But this is the norm. In fact, I did a search for the prevalence of off-grid living and found the following on infoplease.com. In 2013, roughly 1.7 billion people in the world were living off the grid. Now, this seems like a really big number. I mean, in 2013 the total population was 7.25 billion, making off-gridders a whopping 23% of the world population, almost a quarter of the population living off the grid. But when you think about it, all the third world countries, right? The people living in rural China, India, the Arabian deserts, not to mention all of the island regions, and it starts to make sense. A quarter of the world doesn't live like we do. Nothing like us, in fact. But the article does go on to break it down for the U.S., which makes more sense. So, reportedly, in the U.S., there were 180,000 people living off the grid. With a total population of 315 million, that works out to 0.057%. And that percentage probably includes people who are living off the grid because they have to, right? People who live out in the middle of nowhere because their income does not allow them to live in a fully functioning house that's on the grid. So when I talk about most of us living the dream, living like rats in a cage, 
It's true in this country. It is the overwhelming majority. Now, why is that important? Well, back to capitalism and the way that it's used to maintain wealth. In our scenario, the government and the ruling elite have built the perfect environment. A society where over 99% of the people are on the grid, contributing to the flow of capitalism, which in turn allows the rich to get richer. Now, we could call that the American dream, the ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and battle our way to the top, but it just isn't realistic. It's more like playing the lottery and assuming that you have a good chance of winning. Again, I'm oversimplifying, but the more you read about the way things work, the more you realize how capitalism works, and it works for a very specific group of people. And that's where the whole control piece fits into the equation. When capitalism is flourishing, the government and the wealthy ruling class have a level of control over everyone else, manipulating the cost of interest rates, the price of gas, basic things that lower class people absorb in order to boost the economy and make the elite even more money. But at the end of the day, that control isn't even real. It only goes so far and then they lose control. For example, if the government tried to force me to do something, I have two options. I could sell everything and move off the grid. At that point, what would they have over me, right? Or if they tried to place a hold on my bank accounts, I could still sell things for cash and move off the grid that way. In this day and age, the control the government has is somewhat superficial because we still have cash. We have ways of buying and selling that they cannot control. Now, don't get me wrong. If they really wanted, they could physically control us, right? They could arrest you. They could put you in jail. They could lock you up for things. But if we aren't committing crimes, <laughs> that would require a lot of work on their part and a lot of lying to cover things up. But what if things changed in this country? What if my suggested next step related to currency actually came true? To review, moving away from traditional currency to a fully digital solution. Not cryptocurrency, remember, but a digital version of our current system. Sure, based on the things we learned about crypto, based on technology advancements like AI and quantum computing and digital identification, and based on the government's desire to maintain control over that financial system. This is why I don't see cryptocurrency ever fully taking over, because the government loses control that they so desperately want to have. So what would this look like, you ask? And it wouldn't happen soon, would it? Well, I'm no prophet. I can't tell you exactly when or how it would happen, but I can tell you how it will start. And it's pretty simple because steps have already been put in place to make it a reality. Let's back up to March 9th of 2022, right? So we're just coming out of the COVID pandemic, maybe in the middle somewhere, I don't know. But March 9th of 2022, Joe Biden signs an executive order. It's EO14067, and it's called Ensuring Responsible Development of Digital Assets. Now, this executive order did two things. First, it required that the government look into and assess cryptocurrency, how it works, and ways to regulate it 
so that the general population is protected from potential misuses in that area. Interesting, right? And number two, it brings up the conversation about a CBDC, which is the idea of a central bank digital currency. Sound familiar? Now, it never explicitly says that the intention is to do away with cash in order to implement the CBDC, but it also recommends looking into CBDC more fully in order to determine next steps. And friends, that's it. That's all I needed to hear because we're living at the crossroads of the perfect storm. We have the technology to make this happen. The government is afraid of cryptocurrency because they lose control in that environment, or they'll figure out a way to control cryptocurrency. Don't get me wrong. It's one or the other. They'll either move away from it and try to get rid of it because they can't control it, or they'll figure out a way to control it. And we're also living at a time where fraud and identity theft are running rampant. So you pull all of those things together and it's the perfect storm. Our government will, I believe, the government will move very quickly to determine if there is a way to create a digital form of our money. One that will miraculously solve some of these issues that we're facing. But that is when things will shift for us. Back to the control conversation. Right? We talked about the government control being a little superficial right now because cash is still an option. But when cash ceases to exist, that control becomes a reality. Now, if the government wants to place a hold on your ability to buy and sell, all they have to do is click a mouse, push a button, make a move from active to inactive or something like that. And that's all she wrote. You are no longer a viable citizen in your country. Now, sure, you can move off the grid, but if that happens abruptly, there is no way you would be ready to make that shift. Your vehicle would probably only have the gas left in its tank. You would only have the food in your fridge or your pantry. Your gas and electric would end at the end of the month. And so would your entertainment, unfortunately. No more Netflix, Hulu, and all those other apps that we've come to rely on. <laughs> Life as we know it would be over. Now, I'm sure many of you are just laughing right now. This guy's crazy. What a conspiracy theorist. This is a doomsday scenario. It's crap. It'll never happen. And where is he getting these ideas anyways? Well, I've been pretty transparent about the fact that I'm a Christian, so it should be obvious that that's where it's coming from. In fact, we just completed an entire series on eschatology, the study of end time events. And this, my friend, is just a very small slice of that big piece of pie that we walked through. Now, we didn't talk a lot about it, but here it is in living color. I'll wrap up the episode with the following from Revelation 13, 16 to 17. He, referring to one of the beasts described in the chapter, required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead, and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Now, depending on who you are and what your beliefs are about the Bible or about Bible prophecy, you'll probably interpret that a number of different ways. If you are a futurist or a dispensationalist, people who probably read the Left Behind series and go, oh my gosh, that sounds so realistic. 
um, <laughs> you would probably interpret that verse as describing the Antichrist, right? This figure at the end of time who will force all people to take a literal mark, whether it be a tattoo or a computer chip on their hand or on their forehead, and that that mark or that tattoo or that computer chip would basically control them and keep them from buying or selling at the end of time. If you are a historicist, so historicists typically believe at the, at the end of the time that there will be some level of government or societal coercion to adhere to the views of the mainstream. And if you choose to go against them, that you will not be allowed to buy or sell. The mark is less important, right? It doesn't have to be a tattoo. It doesn't have to be a, um, a computer chip or something like that. Most likely it won't be physical. It's more just a representation of what it is you believe. So the forehead represents what you believe and the hand represents your actions or the things that you do. So if you believe that the government is right, and if you are doing the things that the government is asking you to do, then that shows that you have received the mark of the beast. But here's a new one. I just read today uh, a new one that I'd never heard before. So there's a guy that suggests that the buying and the selling isn't even literal, that it isn't the inability to buy or sell products or services as much as it is the inability to buy and sell the truth. And that there will be so much distorted truth being peddled at the end of time that actual truth won't be able to be found at all. Interesting approach, but I'm still going with the middle one, the historicist view. In my estimation, there's only one way to really manipulate and coerce people, especially in a capitalistic country like ours, and that's to hit them where it hurts, in the wallet. Let's land the plane. Friends, this definitely isn't a hill I'm willing to die on. So it is not a major part of my everyday thought, but when I sit down and I really think through the direction we're heading in and how much money plays uh, just a major role in our lives day to day, I can't help but start to see things heading in that direction, the direction that we just walked through. Again, not set in stone, but makes a lot of sense when you really start to look into it. My prayer for each and every one of you is that you have a healthy relationship with money and that when it all comes down, if buying and selling becomes a real physical issue, that we'll all resist the urge to join the crowd, right? To jump on the bandwagon, to just give in because it's easier, to trade in our beliefs for continued comfort on a planet that is quickly coming to an end. Friends, I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, it ended up being way longer than I planned, but uh, we also got to talk about a lot of different things. So that was good. Uh, thanks for being here again, friends. Have a great week. And as always, keep transcending human. Human.